to be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 13, and you have the insert there. It has the passage and some, uh, a bit of an outline as well. We've reached a, a shift point in the book where we have seen in the opening chapters the focus of uh, the equipping with the Holy Spirit to the apostles and those first believers to bring the gospel, to be able to be witnesses to Jerusalem first. Really, that's where it started. And then as they dispersed from Jerusalem into the verses that just precede chapter 8 to chapter 12, you have it spreading out beyond Jerusalem to Judea and then to Samaria. Then we meet Cornelius. And we now at chapter 13 see the first real, you might say, calculated and commissioned mission to send Christians as witnesses to other places where the gospel was not known Uh, where people didn't worship God through Christ, uh, to proclaim, to be witnesses of that message, to be missionaries. We see that happen here in this passage. It's a healthy church in Antioch at this point. Paul and Barnabas have been there for a year teaching. They have multiple teachers there who are gifted, able to teach the Scriptures. Now they're ready to send people uh, to preach the gospel in other places, to see the church planted there. It's a great test case for us or a, a picture for us. Let's hear now as I read God's holy word. It's another amazing account in this wonderful book, the book of Acts. The Acts of the Apostles, as it's known, but it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit to grow Christ's church by God's will. This is God's holy word, starting at verse 1 of Acts 13. I will read to verse 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed. When he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them 
and return to Jerusalem. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we have opened your word to another amazing account of your workings in the early church. We thank you for this inspired record of the expansion of your church by the power of the Holy Spirit. As we study this text, please teach us what may be learned for our time and our place. Give us clarity of understanding and the ability to apply the principles laid out here. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I said to you at the beginning of this series, it's important when you're interpreting a historical narrative like Acts to be careful not to make normal everything that happens. It's depicting or describing for us what God did to establish his church as we really know it now. And the main feature that's unique in this time period we're studying is the word of God, the whole of the New Testament is not completed yet. Um, the New Testament is the Holy Spirit-inspired record of Christ and his fulfillment of all that was said in the Old Testament with instruction for us going forward. The book of Acts is describing that process. So we're careful to notice where there's some unique features because the whole of the scripture is not yet finished in this period. Yet at the same time, there are timeless truths that we can see here and extract, and that's what we seek to do. The story puts us at awe to see what God has done. That alone helps to be applied as we look at God with a higher view, seeing his sovereign hand overgrowing his church. But there are some examples for us that we shouldn't miss. Like this church in Antioch, I think it's a great model church, um, at least in the general ways in which it functions for us as a church. It's a pretty mature church for this era, probably the most impacting church in the first century, since mission trips started here. And we know for a fact through the whole of the teaching that the Bible gives, that sending people or witnesses into areas of the world where the name of Christ is not known and God is not worshipped, this is a major part of the church's mission. Now, we'll see a few things on clear display before us. First, we'll see the features of ascending church. We can draw from this when we look at Antioch. Secondly, we'll also be able to observe how the Holy Spirit leads the church in its mission, how that transfers to our understanding of the Holy Spirit's agency today. How might we look for this? Finally, we'll see an example of an actual mission trip, and it's an exciting mission trip. If you've ever been on a mission trip, strange things happen. And strange things happen in ministry, but strange things, especially when you get out of your comfort zone in a place you're not aware of, and you go out totally dependent on the Lord to help guide and direct you to do the mission he's called you to, strange things will happen, and we have an example of it here in the passage before us. Some of the things that we'll actually maybe experience in our lifetime if you have occasion to do a trip like this or hear from those who we send on our behalf. Sending witnesses into areas of the world where the name of Christ is not known and God is not worshipped. That's what we see beginning here in fullness in chapter 13. Let's look first at the church that sends out these missionaries Barnabas and Saul, who then, of course, now becomes known as Paul going forward. Uh, this church, Antioch, verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Some debate, is this two separate offices or functions? Some say it's a synonymous, synonymous terms, they're both doing the same thing. At this point in the life of the church, because the scripture is not completed, there were those, it seems, who had um, the gift of teaching and prophecy. Not so much to predict the future, but to know what the word of the Lord was by the Holy Spirit's guidance. 
this church had prophets and teachers there. And the text goes on to name five. That's a, that's a healthy amount of gifted teachers in this relatively new church. So we know first and foremost, this sending church was a well-taught church. It was steeped in knowledge of the Lord as taught to them. We know that Barnabas and Saul were there for a whole year, uh, just teaching and preaching. We know they were well-taught, too, by their actions. You remember they were sensitive when they heard that Jerusalem was having a crisis and they needed an offering. The church responded immediately with an offering. Generosity for people they don't even know is a sign of spiritual maturity, and that comes from being well-taught. So we can be sure they were well taught. They were receiving good teaching. In fact, John Calvin's observation about this church is as follows. There were many men in that church endowed with the singular grace of the Spirit to teach, excellent interpreters of the Scriptures. So to be a solid missionary church, you have to be a well-taught church. You have to be in the Word of God and in God's doctrines. That's what's so important is in the foundations of a church that sends totally on display the church at Antioch. But something about the leadership is very telling, and it's wonderful when you see it displayed in this church that kind of represents the Roman world at the time. Um, Really, there are people from all parts of the Roman world there as leaders in the church. Um, Antioch was uh, very multi-ethnic and very multicultural, and you have representatives of each of these men in the leadership who are promoting this mission to send Barnabas and Saul. There was a plurality of these leaders, not just one leader, multiple, multiple gifted teachers with diverse backgrounds. Their names tell us something of their diversity. You can see this. There were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Main and a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. We know how impressive Saul is, and he's just kind of tacked on the and Saul. But let's look at these names. It tells us a little bit about them. We already know a little bit about Barnabas. He is a Levite, so he's Jewish, probably served as a Jewish priest for a time as a Levite. Um, He's known as the son of encouragement, yet he is part of the the diaspora. He's in Cyprus, the island off in the coast coast in the Mediterranean. So he's a a person who would have known Greek culture as well as knowledgeable knowledgeable about the Old Testament. Now that's going to help when they go on their first mission because they go to Cyprus first. That's one of the first stops. That's Barnabas. Then Simeon called Niger, which means black or darkened. And that's not a negative term at all. It was actually viewed very highly as he would have been from another another part of the world and a man of wisdom and teaching. In fact, some scholars think this Simeon may be the same one who helped Jesus when he fell carrying the cross. There's some good possibilities in the biblical text that lean towards pointing that way. We don't know for sure, but we know he's from a different part of the world altogether, and he is one of the leaders in the church. He's a convert to Judaism, no doubt. Then there's Lucius. Now, the name itself gives us indication he's from Roman background. That's a Roman name. Uh, We don't know more about him except for that he's of Cyrene. This would be North Africa, yet another part of the world, now a convert to Christianity, knowledgeable of the Roman world, one of the leaders in the church at Antioch. Manan, he's interesting because he is an actual intimate friend of Herod Antipas. Now, you remember the Herod we looked at last time we studied Acts a few weeks ago? That's the one who died of the intestinal parasites. That one was Agrippa, Herod. Antipas is just before him. Antipas is the one who put John the Baptist to death. Antipas is the one who is part of Jesus' trial. 
this Manan was a friend of Herod, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch is the other name for Herod Antipas. This makes for some very interesting information because Luke writes quite a bit about Herod in his gospel in here. Now we probably have an understanding of where he learned about Herod. Um, he had interaction with Manan, who is a lifelong friend of Herod, but now a convert to Christianity. Not just a convert, one of the teachers, one of the leaders in the church at Antioch. This well-taught church had a diverse group of leaders who understood the world in which they lived and were able to mobilize a mission team to send out to see the church expanded. Of course, let's not forget Saul, the Jewish Pharisee, the expert on the law and of the Old Testament from Tarsus, a Roman citizen yet a Jewish leader and expert. This team of five leaders are really equipped to start this missionary enterprise that we see. You know, something else we notice about the church beyond its leadership and its being so well taught, it's spiritually engaged. It's an active spiritual church. Um, the memberships joined together in worshiping. Um, the passage, while they were worshiping, in the larger context, it has to be speaking of the whole of the congregation. It wasn't just the five leaders. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. So they were coming together and they had some practice of fasting going on, um, which is an effort to try to a negative action, if you will, to incur a positive one, to focus on seeking the Lord for his will. So they were active in this at this stage. They were worshiping the Lord and fasting. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Uh, whether this was audible or one of the people who occupied the office of prophet was able to discern directly the Holy Spirit's message, we're not told exactly, but it's very clear that the Holy Spirit says, through this process of worship and prayer, um, that they are to send Barnabas and Saul on a special mission. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. We'll look at this a little uh, closer in a moment, but for now, just recognize this is a spiritually engaged church. They're worshiping together, they're praying, they're seeking God's will. Um, there's a dynamic feature or a, a dynamic element of the church is life. It's alive. It's not just getting together once and then going off and doing their thing. They're connected, and there is a definite thrust towards seeing the church expand. We see this on display. They were sensitive to the Holy Spirit for sure. Their worship and their prayer and their fasting and their listening for God's will certainly shows this. After they fasted and prayed. Then they believed that they had a knowledge of God's will through the Holy Spirit. They acted by laying their hands on Barnabas and Saul and sending them off. Uh, James Boyce characterizes this church, this Antioch church, this way. At Antioch, we have an example of a mighty missionary tool, a church that was established, well-taught, integrated, active, and seeking God's direction. This is a worthy example for us to follow as a church. This is a super strong church. Not every church will be this strong. In fact, in the scope of churches, God specially gifts some churches more than others. But wherever we are as a church, we should seek these things out in our midst, that we're praying consistently for God's will to be clear, that we're worshiping together, that we're even fasting at times to seek God's will in special ways. Um, these are wonder, this is a wonderful picture, a timeless picture of a church that's used mightily of God to impact the world with the gospel. I want you to notice more closely now verses 2 through 4 so we can kind of pick at this, what this means to be led by the Holy Spirit. We all want to be led by the Holy Spirit as Christians, I would guess. 
But we have to admit, sometimes it's challenging to know, what does this mean in our day and age that the Holy Spirit would just speak like this in this context? While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. How do we discern the voice of the Holy Spirit today? Well, remember, the Holy Spirit ultimately, in some finality, speaks through the Word of God, giving us exactly God's will. The Holy Spirit is the agent that inspires the the writers to write exactly what God wants as his message. That's what the Bible is. So the Holy Spirit actually does speak to us dynamically all the time in the Word of God. Don't underestimate that or think that less dynamic because you don't hear an audible voice. In fact, if you would ask someone in the first century, would you rather have a whisper from the Holy Spirit from time to time or would you rather have the written Word of God established that you could search every day? I would say they probably picked the the Word of God. We just would love a voice to whisper. Now, I am not saying the Holy Spirit does not impress us in ways that are inexplicable because he does. But what we do is we compare anything we get as a sense or if I think the Holy Spirit's impressing this or that upon me, I go to the Word of God to see if it would be true. I also go to other Christians who have the Holy Spirit indwelling them, who have the Word of God, and together we work to understand God's will. That's how it looks today, but it's no less dynamic. The Holy Spirit is actively involved in helping us know what specific missions he may have for us as a local church. We know what the general mission is. We should be part of sending people to go bring the gospel where it has not been heard and people are not worshiping God. There are many ways that can happen in the church's life. We know that generally true. But how specifically, Lord? So we pray towards this. We think upon this. We discuss this. We look at options. We see what's available. And we're always working to discern God's will about how we would be part of this great commission that Jesus has given and we see carried out now through the time of the disciples and the apostles now. This tool that is used here, fasting, is one that's underutilized for most of us. Most in this day, we don't think as much about it as we probably ought to. And in Scripture, there are different kinds of fasts, to be clear. There are what you might call communal fasts, like congregational fasts that we would call for when we're going to make a big decision as a church. Um, Or smaller groups of people might get together to fast over a certain situation. Um, it could also be just an, indep- or a, an individual fast where it's just between you and the Lord. That's the one that's most spoken of or described of as individuals partaking of. It's really not something we're going to tell everyone about. It's just between you and the Lord. In fact, telling everyone about it kind of puts it a look at me thing instead of what it's really meant to do is focus me on the Lord during this time frame. There's also normal fast, which you might say no food for a time, but you might drink something. There are partial fasts like we see in the Old Testament with Daniel only eating certain foods. There are absolute fasts with no food or water. We see the Lord do this, and we see others, like Moses does something like this as well in the Old Testament, a total fast. Whatever the case, it's a tool. It's, as Kent Hughes says, a mark of deep spiritual concern indicating that a person or a congregation is willing to set aside the normal demands of life in order to concentrate for a time on what God wants. Now, what would help us see or sense the Holy Spirit's guidance and direction more is if we did work more specifically or carefully at praying and fasting. It doesn't always have to be announced from the the pulpit, but we as individuals carry that out. And then also we could have seasons of that as a church. This would help us uh, be more dynamic spiritually for sure. Now, we do pray, hopefully, a lot as a church, individually in our church services, collectively in other fashions, but we could always grow in this area, and I think Antioch gives us a great picture 
of this worshiping and fasting together, praying together, seeking God's direction. We have that added element, that incredible means of God's grace, his completed word to pour over, like we're doing right now, trying to discern what it says and how it applies. The leading of the Holy Spirit works this way, and especially as it relates to missions. I want you also to see the importance of laying hands on these missionaries. Now, it's not the same as the ordina- laying hands on to ordain someone for ministry. You could use the word ordain or set or commission might be a better word, modern word, for setting upon them the commissioning of God. And this is what it is. The Spirit of God impresses the church to send some out. And so we publicly acknowledge that by laying hands on and commissioning missionaries for short-term or long-term service, whatever it may be. It's the calling of God confirmed by the church itself, and it also gives the individuals an appreciation for their accountability and their mission, to stay on mission. It helps the congregation to recognize their partnership with those who are sending out so they won't forget them. Calvin, who I referred to earlier, speaks quite, about, quite a bit about missions. You know, one of those um, stereotypes about Calvinists is this idea uh, that they don't pursue missions. Total, the, uh, totally the opposite. If you study Geneva, where Calvin taught, he had whole sections of teaching on how to carry out missions. His personal goal was to see France evangelized. That's where he was from. And he had great success sending out thousands of missionaries from Geneva to go to France. It only eventually got crushed by Roman Catholic. Uh, basically, they backlashed and killed the, the French Huguenots and other groups that were from Calvin's time teaching how to go do missions. And so a lot of what he says is very instructive about how to train and commission missionaries. Listen to what he says. They laid their hands upon Barnabas and Paul that the church might offer them to God and that they might with their consent declare that this office, this missionary office as he calls it, was enjoined them by God. For the calling was properly God's alone, but the external ordaining did belong to the church and that according to the heavenly oracle. It's this mixture of waiting upon the Spirit, studying His Word, praying, fasting, asking the Lord. That's how we discern God's will in general. But it's also true for the church. And in the Presbyterian church, if you're new to this, you might be thinking to yourself, if you're from a different church government model, they're kind of slow, those Presbyterians, about how they get to stuff. That's, that's, that's probably a good observation. Um, the way it works, though, is the sense is that the church calls leaders to govern the church in general. But then when there's something like a mission of the church to, to be carried out, the congregation, through its gifting, um, there will be a passion that arises. The, the leaders of the church recognize this in the body of Christ because every church body is a little bit different, wired a little bit uh, uh, more uniquely. Um, specific callings are true to f- churches. General callings the same, but specific ways in which our church may carry it out comes through the congregation and the leaders working and praying and talking over in vetting situations. We're part of a denomination that helps um, bring us missionaries as part of our wider church that want to go to various places, feel they're called. We have to vet that. We have to pray about that, think about that, and then we send and we help send others. Um, that's how the process works um, in today, today's day and today's age. Let's look at the mission itself, though. This is a mission trip that was unforgettable for everybody who was on it, yet it's only one of many that, that Paul is part of and Barnabas as well. Uh, the work of missions itself, though, we can see an example of the kind of thing that might happen when you go out to endeavor to spread the name of Christ into areas of the world where his name is not known or God is not worshipped. We have exactly this story here 
and follow with me. It's, it's an exciting story. I mean, this is a classic missionary tale, um, a true story of what can happen when you have these kinds of, you might call them power encounters of sorts. Verse 5, when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. I want you to notice that first. Here's this example to us that's timeless. Missions must be about the proclamation of the word of God. I mean, that's the reason you go do missions. There may be many things you do when you're on a mission so that you can set up the proclamation of the word. They're necessary things. Uh, But the proclamation of the word is the goal. And what does it mean, the proclamation of the word? It's just a synonymous term for or phrase for they preach the gospel. Proclamation of the word of God means proclaiming Christ. And so where do they go first? They go to the synagogue if there is one because people would have known the Old Testament. They have the word of God, but not in its completion. So the missionaries bring the completion of the word of God, the word himself, Christ, and that's what they proclaim. It's shorthand for preaching Christ. And that's got to be the centerpiece of any missionary endeavor to preach the word of God. Are there many needs you might need to meet in process? Uh, People are hungry or hurting or they're starving or there's construction or things that they we have to help with these things so they can not be distracted when they hear what the word is so we don't ignore that but the heart of it is to proclaim the word of God and that's what's described here when they went to Salamis they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues and of, of the of the Jews now I was curious as to maybe pinpointing the the specifics of the message that they might have given in those early days um, it's very very consistent as we would hope to see in the New Testament um, when Paul first uh, receives a sight after he's converted, you remember what he does? He was strengthened for some days. He was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately, this is Acts chapter 9, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the Son of God. So proclaiming the Word of God is proclaiming Christ as the fullness of the message of God's Word. Later in Acts 10, in the memory verse we have for this year, Peter, talking about what they were commissioned to do and preach, And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. He's preaching Christ. To him, Christ, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's what was proclaimed. That's the missionary message today, 2,000 plus years later. Still the same message. Back to verse 5. When they arrived, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Now, something you'll notice in missions and in this story, there are often times, and I say often times because uh, if Christ has not been proclaimed and Christ is brought there, there is going to be a power encounter of sorts because the devil is the father of those who don't know Christ yet. And if Christ is brought to a place where he's not known, there's going to be backlash. And we have an example of it here in this passage. It's, it's, a, it's a powerful and a colorful one. This person, Elimas, who is a, a sorcerer or a magician, verse 6, They'd gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, and they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. That means son of salvation. He was teaching his own uh, magical, uh, mystical message. Notice what it says. He was with the proconsul, the proconsul, probably the governor of that whole region. He was with the proconsul, kind of as an advisor, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So Sergius is a proconsul, a governor. He has this guy in his ear, this Elimas, who is a sorcerer, telling him and filling him his head with who knows what. 
but Sergius senses it isn't right. He hears Paul and Barnabas are there and wants to hear what they have to say. But notice what it says. Verse 8. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, Paul and Barnabas. Seeking, and this tells his motive, this isn't just a mere unbeliever saying, I don't believe that. He's doing something by motivation. He opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. This rises, this raises the ire of Saul, the spirit-felt ire of, spirit-led ire of Saul. Verse 9, and notice now he's called Paul from this point forward. But Saul, who was also called Paul, he's not referred to as Saul again after this, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. This is one of the most confrontational uh, episodes in the Scripture. And I am not suggesting it's the model for every confrontation, but sometimes it is. It's what's necessary, especially when an enemy of God is trying to sway someone who's hearing the gospel away from believing it. Saul, who's called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. And you can just imagine how intently. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? How cutting, how strong, how in this guy's face can you be? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. So it takes him out of the picture, and the proconsul hears the gospel. And the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. I was trying to figure how graphically to display this. The story is powerful enough on its own. I don't use a lot of illustrations when we're preaching through a historic narrative because I don't want to get in the way of a story that's told well enough. doesn't need my help. Uh, but there is a story that might help some. Uh, those of you who are Lord of the Rings uh, fans, and not just the movie, I'm talking the books. There's more to them in the books. There's a great scene. It's done well in the movie as well, but there's a great scene that reminds me a bit of this. You have Theoden, the king of Rohan, who is under the spell, ultimately, of Saruman. Uh, basically, think of him as demon-possessed. He has an advisor, Grima, who keeps, keeping, keeps him in darkness, doesn't want him to come out of darkness because he wants to be an agent of the demon as well. I kind of think of Theoden as sort of like the proconsul. He's this powerful leader, but he can't use his power for what it should be used for because he's in darkness. And Grima, who's called Wormtongue, which is a great definition of what he is, um, he's like the sorcerer in this story. And he just stays in the ear of Theoden. Theoden can't release himself from it. Then Gandalf comes in, who's disguised as less powerful than he really is. He's wearing gray when he's really now a white wizard, which makes him more powerful. Uh, maybe he was a disciple in the gray, but then white as an apostle, right? That's the connection. Gandalf's like, like Paul in the story. And he comes in to free Theoden from darkness, and he has to deal with the man who's keeping him in darkness and won't let him talk to Theoden. Hear the way, the way Tolkien puts it, because it's beautifully, beautifully written. I'll try to read it well enough. He's sometimes hard to read out loud. Suddenly, Gandalf changed. Casting his tattered cloak aside, he stood up and leaned no longer on his staff. And he spoke in a clear, cold voice. The wise speak only of what they know, Grima, son of Galmod, a witless worm you have become. Therefore, be silent and keep your forked tongue behind your teeth. I have not passed through fire and death to bandy crooked words with a serving man till the lightning falls. He raised his staff. 
There was a roll of thunder. The sunlight was blotted out from the eastern windows. The whole hall became suddenly dark as night. Only Gandalf could be seen, standing white and tall before the blackened hearth. In the gloom they heard Wormtongue's voice. Did I not counsel you, Lord, to forbid his staff? There was a flash as if lightning had cloven the roof. Wormtongue sprawled flat on his face. Now, Theoden, the son of Thengel, will you hearken to me, Gandalf said? Do you ask for help? He lifted his staff and pointed. I bid you to come out before your doors and look abroad. Too long you have sat in shadows and trusted to twisted tales and crooked promptings. Slowly Theoden left his chair. A faint light grew in the hall again. With faltering steps, the old man came down from the dace and paced softly through the hall. Then came to the doors and Gandalf knocked. He said, dark have been my dreams of late, but I feel as one now new awaken. With that in your mind, Elimas, the magician, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked at him intently and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all, unrighteousness, of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Harsh words from Paul? No, necessary words from Paul in that situation. There are some times where that must be the confrontation against the enemies of God, especially when they try to purposefully point someone away from the gospel they're hearing. Calvin once again wrote something wise about this. He says, Paul doesn't vehemently inveigh against the sorcerer at the first dash. It's not the first thing Paul does is yell at the, yell at the sorcerer. But when he sees him maliciously and manifestly fight against the doctrines of godliness, he handles him like a bond slave of Satan that he is. Thus must we deal with the desperate enemies of the gospel, in whom appears open contumacy and wicked contempt of God, especially when they stop the way before others. And lest any man should think that Paul was out of measure angry, Luke says plainly that the inspiration of the Spirit was his guide. Wherefore, this heat of zeal should not be reprimanded, but it ought to make the profane condemners of God more afraid. Those who fear not to rebel against his word, for as much as this judgment is given upon them all, not by mortal man, but by the Holy Ghost, by the mouth of Paul. A great picture of this encounter that happens and sometimes can happen in these settings. I want you to notice also, and finally, with regard to, well, two things really. The first one is, we should expect con conversions to happen when we bring the gospel. Sergius Paulus, look what his response is to everything he's been watching. And it's a combination of the things he's just seen. Then the proconsul, verse 12, believed. When he saw what occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching or the doctrine of the Lord. He sees this occurrence and he's compelled to believe. And what astonishes him is the teaching of the Lord. The teaching of the Lord is the activity that happens and the teaching that interprets it or tells him how to be right with God. Now, how does this work today? If we go in the mission field, are we going to be able to cast curses on people that are opposing? That's not really the lesson here. The lesson is God has recorded for us in his word amazing events, true events that happen like this one. So when we go other places to bring the message of the gospel, when we preach the word of God just as it is, tell the stories of what God did in this miraculous time period, God will use those true occurrences recorded in scripture to grip the listeners, they will hear and be astonished at the teaching of the Lord and they'll believe. 
Not to say that God won't do something amazing in the mission field. Some miraculous occurrence may or may not happen. That's not it. We have the scripture as the whole. They don't yet hear, so these things are unfolding. We do now, and we go in full belief of everything we see here written, and we preach all of it with the lens focused upon Christ as the fulfiller. And then what will happen? People will believe when they see what has occurred as it's recorded, and they'll be astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Finally, Unfortunately, a little bit on a negative note to end the passage. This is the way the passage is. It's a very brief phrase, but don't miss it. Verse 13, it's like a transfer into the next phase, but please don't miss the last words. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga at Pamphylia. And John, who is John Mark, John left them. Remember, John was there to assist them. He was there to give logistic support, moral support, all sorts of ways in which he clearly was important to them. We know this by the reaction. But something happens along the way. John grows tired, or he grows weary, or he's afraid, or he doesn't think he can do this any longer. And the passage mentions it on purpose. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. It's important because later when another missionary journey has begun, it brings a split between Paul and Barnabas because Barnabas wants to take John Mark again. And Paul says, I'm not going with him again. He quit on us. I'm not saying anything bad about John Mark, because that could be any of us. We're all people. Uh, Some say this example of Paul being too unforgiving. This is the reality of us people carrying out God's mission. It's not going to be pretty sometimes, and there will be things that occur that are disappointing. Um, But the mission goes on, and the belief in the gospel itself is what helps restore our relationships in a beautiful picture that we'll see as it unfolds. John Mark eventually becomes of great value to the apostles. In fact, when Paul, later in his life, near death, is almost ready to die, he writes a letter saying, bring John Mark to me, for he is helpful to me. It's a beautiful reconciliation, but that's years later. What we're seeing here is reality, and when you're endeavoring into ministry, into missions, you're a person, another person's a person, we're fallen, we're going to have trouble. Even as redeemed believers, at times there will be issues that occur, and it brings disappointment. And it drives us to the gospel all the more that we might be reconciled so that we can work together and carry out this mission that God has called us to. This mission that we are to bring Christ's name into parts of the world where his name is not yet known and God is not worshipped. This is the kernel of what we are supposed to be about as a church. As we study the rest of the missionary journeys that will now start to unfold from this point, I would ask that you would prayerfully consider how you might be used of God to be part of whatever missionary efforts God would call our church to. You know a starting point for your own awareness is just to pull out your insert every Sunday and look at the missions update, see one of the missionaries that we believe that God has led us to help support both financially by prayer and by sending teams. Be familiar with the names of these folks. Know that these are the people that people have vetted, have thought and prayed about this. Some fasted about who we should we should take on. Uh, We as a church could all become more aware, and then that will draw you more personally. I do warn you that you'll be drawn more personally into it, and you could eventually end up going one of these trips, which you may not imagine right now. But I believe it's one of the greatest tools of your own discipleship to be part of one of these kinds of endeavors and trips at some point in your life. And all of us as a church can engage in it just through the missionaries that we have the pleasure and the privilege 
of supporting in a regular way. So start by praying for the ones you see written in this bulletin and start to pray as we look through the missionary journeys in the book of Acts at how we all might be more involved. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this, this incredible story, another incredible story of Paul and Sergius and Elimas and just everything about the story, the dynamics, the colorful nature of it, just the way it informs us of so much. I do pray that you would give us, uh, disimpress us by what we've read. Make us grow um, deeper in love with Christ uh, in the sovereign work that he is, is moving to spread his gospel and his church the world over. I do pray that you'd help us as a church to be very supportive of those missionaries that we have taken on, that we have been part of commissioning. I pray for the teams that we'll send out from here that do missionary work for all of us as we consider the ways in which you call us to be witnesses in the locales that we are. Just make us more sensitive, Lord. Make us more spiritually engaged in the various means that you give us, like fasting, like prayer, like this time of worship, the fellowship we have with others. Lord, just make us hungry for all these things, to want to see them as much a part of our life as the many other things that we commit to. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.